So you might notice I only have like a front page, an outline. So let's see if we can uh, get through this rather quickly. Um, the, the, chap, the reading, though, is a little longer, and I'm actually going to reference four chapters of Hebrews tonight. Yeah. That, that's because um, I really want to finish Hebrews this semester, and it has 13 chapters, and we don't have 13 weeks of RUF in the fall. We have a couple more weeks, actually, in the spring semester. Um, so here's the thing. The, this section of Hebrews, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 basically is this kind of long theological exposition about the Old Testament priesthood and how Jesus um, is the greater uh, high priest. Now, some of that is a little obscure because maybe you haven't grown up around Christian stuff or Christian church. You're like, okay, I don't even know the first bit of what you just talked about. Well, the letter to the Hebrews is what we are looking at each week in RUF on Tuesday nights. We have gone through the first six chapters, and tonight we're going to look at chapter 10. But to get to chapter 10, I'm going to tell you something about 7, 8, and 9. And then we're going to look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, in some ways, kind of brings this section of the letter to a conclusion and then applies it. So we're going to look at, okay, what is chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 about, and why does it matter? That's basically what we're looking at tonight. What is chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 about, and why does it matter? And, and one of the things that's interesting is, uh, well, let me just say it this way. How many of you know that Arrested Development is the greatest ensemble comedy that's ever been televised? <laughs> yes, right? It's not Parks and Rec. It's not The Office. It's Arrested Development, and there's no, there is no disputing that fact. And if you haven't seen it, um, then you should watch it. Has anybody seen Arrested Development? Yeah, okay. So you remember, this, this is the way I was trying to think about how to explain um, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, and I thought of Arrested Development, and here's why. Um, if you don't know, it's a, it's a show about this family, and then everything kind of starts to fall apart, but their kind of family business was developing real estate. And when they go bankrupt and everything falls apart, where do they move into? They move into one of the model homes, right? And all through the show, you realize the model home looks nice. It looks posh, even though it's like sitting in the middle of like this completely barren landscape. But half the stuff doesn't actually work. It's not solid. You can put your fist through the wall because it's just the shadow. It's just this replica, but it's not the real thing. And usually replicas come after the fact, okay? Usually somebody makes something great and then you have a knockoff version, right? But what you see the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the priesthood and the old covenant, all of these things are shadows pointing to something real and solid that has now come to fruition in the person of Jesus and the work that he's done. That's what this whole section is about. The reality to which the Old Testament pointed has now come. And that's a really big deal. That's Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. I could say it this way, and then we'll read chapter 10. The religion that God gave his people in the Old Testament was to teach them 
about his nature, his character, their need to be reconciled, his promise to make a way. But it did not in itself actually work. It didn't actually work. And built into the system of all the sacrifices, animal sacrifice, all this stuff they did, built into it was this point. It's not working, guys. And how were they to know that? Well, because they had to do it over and over and over and over again, right? I mean, it's like, how do you know when you've studied enough? Like when you can go to sleep, right? Like when you're like, okay, I, I, can, I can rest now. I don't need to keep doing this over and over and over and over again. They could never rest because they had to do it over and over and over again. And the writer of the Hebrews uh, says, Jesus is the one all of that stuff is pointing to. Jesus is the true priest, not a Levitical priest, the sons of Levi, right? The priesthood that was set up through the Mosaic law, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You might not have even ever heard of Melchizedek because Melchizedek is mentioned briefly in the book of Genesis, and then he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and that's it. And yet Hebrews 7, the entire chapter is about Melchizedek, and we're going to talk about why. Uh, then you're going to understand Jesus is not only the true priest after the order of Melchizedek, why that matters, but he entered into the true holy of holies, of which the temple was just a copy, just an analog, just a model. And he died a real death to purify us and cleanse our consciences and to bring us into the new covenant with the law written on our hearts by the Spirit. So let me read chapter 10, and then we will dig into this teaching for tonight. So the writer of Hebrews says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. This is Hebrews 10 verse one. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, and there's all quotes from the Old Testament here, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, 
He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, and here's the big payoff. Three chapters of theology to get to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, the veil, as we just sung about. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for. And again quotes the Old Testament in just a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. It's a long passage, and it goes kind of lots of different places, right? Let's pray, and then we're going to work our way through this tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your holy, inerrant, infallible word, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see 
um, once again, um, the gospel and the glory of the one who has promised and is faithful. Your word, Lord, help us to see who you are more deeply in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, you know, I, I gave you a little summary. Let me just kind of hit on those couple points before we get to kind of the payoff with the let us hold unswervingly section. Like I said, Hebrews chapter 7 devoted an entire chapter to this guy Melchizedek, um, which is just kind of fascinating. And you might wonder, why is that the case? I think you get a little clue when you know that the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, in other words, the verse that the New Testament quotes the most from the Old Testament is this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, I don't know the last time you had a quiet time in that verse, um, or if that's kind of one of those memory verses or warm, fuzzy verses. Why is that? Why is that the most quoted verse from the Old Testament by the New Testament? Any ideas? Well, the reason is this. The disciples, I mean, one of the, one of the themes you see all through the Gospels is the disciples are following Jesus, but they're generally pretty confused about what's going on, right? At times, they really um, are so confused that they try to stop Jesus from what he plans to do. At one point, Peter says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So it's pretty clear when you read the four Gospels that the disciples were not stellar students. They really were confused and at times even tried to get in the way of what Jesus intended to do. I think that actually is encouraging to all of us who try to follow Jesus uh, because you don't have to be a superhero to be a Jesus follower, okay? It's never been that way. And yet what you find is after Jesus is crucified, and then he appears, he's resurrected. All of a sudden, these monotheistic Jewish men are going around telling everybody and even willing to suffer for this testimony that that guy we knew, our friend Jesus, he's God. And he came to do what God had promised all through the Old Testament. And when they began to understand this, they were driven to that conclusion. They did not come to that conclusion easily. They didn't get it before he died and was resurrected. After he was resurrected, they had to go back to the Bible and see if they missed something. And indeed they had. And that's why that verse rings true for them of their experience. Everybody missed who Jesus was. He is the most important, the cornerstone. Like the whole building goes askew if the cornerstone is not laid well and is not perfectly square. But the chief cornerstone was rejected. The one who is the key to everything, the one by whom and through whom all things were made was rejected. And that's the only explanation they can find for what they had experienced and witnessed. So when you see that verse quoted over and over again, it's because that is the only way they could make sense of the upside down nature of the kingdom that came in a way nobody expected, and yet it actually accomplished what they had hoped for. I was reading a, a little passage from a guy named N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, and he said, look, if 
one of the other thieves on the cross had been uh, resurrected from the dead, people would have said, wow, that's kind of weird. The reason that Jesus being raised from the dead changed everything because of what he had said, because of the hopes of the Jewish people and the way Jesus fulfilled those hopes, but in a way that not anyone had expected. But he didn't, he, he, he brought about the fulfillment of everything was hoped for. It's in a thoroughly Jewish context. It's not just a random thing. Hey, this guy rose from the dead. It's this guy rose from the dead to vindicate that he was the Messiah and the one who would make all things new. That's why it was a big deal. And so when you come to the Bible, the, 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 the disciples, the early Christians are going back, reading the Old Testament, did we miss something? Like, the story of Melchizedek becomes something they're like, whoa, how did we miss this? And what is it about the story of Melchizedek that is a big deal? Because what Jesus did and what Jesus said was, the Levitical priesthood, all those sacrifices that you're doing, is pointing to what I'm going to do. But once I make my sacrifice, there will be no more need for sacrifices. Now, there were places in the Old Testament that talked about that. One of the clearest is in Zechariah, where it talks about how um, Yeshua, which is the Jewish name Jesus, um, the high priest will come before the Holy of Holies, covered in, most translations say, filthy clothes, but it really, in the Hebrew, it says in excrement. Covered in excrement, he's going to stand before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, which is astonishing and shocking because the high priest only stood before the Holy of Holies one day a year and only in pure, clean white robes. You know the priests never wore white robes 364 days a year. They wore brightly colored robes, except on the Day of Atonement, they wore white robes. And the priests actually bathed behind a linen screen in public so that all the people would know the one who represents us before God is pure and clean. And yet Zechariah, who is a prophet and a priest, so he knows exactly what this image is, is, is speaking to, sees this picture of Yeshua, the high priest, covered in excrement, standing before the throne of God. And do you know what God says about that? He says, this picture, these men standing here in this vision are symbolic of things to come, and I'm going to heal the land of its sin in a single day. Now, can you imagine? You've been offering sacrifices for thousands of years, numerous times a day, and, and Yeshua, the high priest, standing before God covered in excrement, is going to cleanse the sin of the land in a single day? But that is exactly what happened. Because Jesus was the only one who ever dared stand before God, not trying to clean himself up and pretend that he had it all together, but covered in your and my sin. And God obliterated him. Therefore, we can have confidence to stand before the presence of God because God has already dealt with everything that needed to be judged, and he did it on the person of Jesus. So they go back and they read and they find this guy, Melchizedek, and they're like, whoa, okay, the sin in a single day, how's that gonna happen? Because the Levitical priests have to do it over and over and over and over again. And not only that, they have to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they can even offer sacrifice for other people. Well, they find this guy, Melchizedek, 
Melchizedek just shows up after Abraham has won this great victory, and, and Abraham actually sacrifices and gives him a tithe of, of the loot that he's been able to get from this great victory. And so they realize, okay, think about this. Abraham is the father of the Levitical, you know, the Levi and all the, the sons, right? And so Levi is in the loins, this is how the Old Testament says, he's in the loins of Abraham, and Abraham bowed down to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek needs to be greater than all the Levitical priesthood. And the other interesting thing about Melchizedek is it's not recorded who his parents are. If you've read the book of Genesis very much, and probably have in Old Testament or understand the Bible, you find everybody gets a genealogy. Like you know who everybody's ancestry is. Melchizedek shows up with no ancestry, which is in a way to say it's like he's eternal. It's like he came from nothing. And so they say maybe that's actually speaking to the fact that the Levitical priesthood was not ultimate and supreme and not the ultimate solution to the sin issue, right? Not only that, but they go back and they remember what God said to Moses and they realize, oh, how did Moses know how to construct the tabernacle? I know, you know, a lot of people might believe that if you believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, which I do and which we do uh, with RUF, that doesn't mean you have to believe that to be part of it of RUF or to be coming here, but I believe that. I think the scriptures teach that. Um, but a lot of people think that if you believe that, you believe that God dictated word for word what should be written in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that, nor do those who believe in inerrancy and fallibility believe in what's called the dictation theory, okay? And this is one of the verses that shows you that because Moses did not get word for word dictated to him, here's what you should write. Instead, God showed him a picture of the true tabernacle, the true heavenly tabernacle, and said, make a copy of it. And that's what he says here. So the sacrificial system under Moses, this is point two, was only a copy of the true temple of heaven, which God showed Moses through a vision. And that's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. It says this, they, meaning the Levitical priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. He was shown the heavenly temple and he was then instructed to make a copy, right? And again, the fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again shows that they weren't really dealing with sin. And there's one other thing that 7, 8, and 9 talk about, and it's this. God had promised a new covenant. Now, God, the covenant is basically a relationship, and it's a promise, where God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, okay? The, and, and he says that, and then he tells people, this then is how you should live as my people. But what happened? They didn't live that way. The old covenant talks about how God wants us to live, but it didn't actually have power to help the people live that way. But it is showing that you don't just walk into, well, you don't walk into mortar, but you don't walk into the throne room of God. You don't just walk into the throne room of God, of a holy God, right? 
but he has promised that he will make a way, and the covenant is that promise. But Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, speaks about a new covenant, and this new covenant is one that God will not just have you write on, on your you know, forehead or write on, you know, they would write on different, you know, write the law and remember it and write this down. No, instead, now the Spirit is going to write the law on your heart, right? It's going to write this on your heart. There are two aspects of the new covenant, and this is chapter 9, chapter 8, chapter 9, that are so important for us to understand. Um, the first is the transformation of the heart. What's promised in the Old Testament is that God's people would have their hearts transformed. I, I think about it this way. There's, a, there's an old um, Anglican clergyman, in, a guy named John Berridge, lived back in the 1700s, and uh, he had this great little poem. He puts it this way, run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The new covenant doesn't, doesn't actually change the law. This is how you are to love God. The Ten Commandments, that doesn't change, but what changes is now that's written on our heart and we're given power to obey. And the second is forgiveness of sins is promised in the new covenant. What did you have in the old covenant? You had the covering over of sins, but not the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins can only happen through the death of Jesus. Okay, so what's the point of all this? Um, because trust me, we could have done weeks on that and I didn't think we needed to. Because here's the point. Here's the point. We have confidence. Confidence. And you might think, okay, yeah, big deal. Here's, here's why it's a big deal. I don't think most Christians have confidence. And God does not want a groveling scared people. We are to have confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Let me read this again, verse 19. Therefore, you remember that whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask, what's the there, therefore? It's, it's, a, it's a conclusion, it's an implication drawn from all this stuff about Jesus' priesthood. And if you're like, oh, I don't get all this priesthood stuff. Okay, you can go back and read it some more later, but here's the point. We have confidence. Because unlike the Old Testament priests who had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again, unlike the Old Testament priests who had to worry whether they'd done everything just right or whether they were going to get blotted out of existence, we have a great high priest who has done everything perfectly. Jesus, who intercedes for us. And that's why it says we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. If you were Jewish, that is like a crazy talk. Because nobody enters into the holy place, and certainly not with confidence. You can, better, you can be pretty sure that the high priest, on the one day that he was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, you've got you to gotta know that he was kind of freaking out. If you ever read uh, in Leviticus about the very first Day of Atonement, they go through all these preparations, all these rituals, trying to make sure they do it exactly right, and the whole dramatic tension of the story is, is it going to work or are they going to get blasted? Uh, you know? and, and when God actually accepts the sacrifice, it's like, oh, 
Okay, but every time it was like that. Every time. You remember there was a guy who, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and, and, and it started to fall, and he reached out his hand to stop it, and you remember what happened? He was struck dead instantly, right? That's very hard for us to understand because we take such a casual approach toward a holy God. We think he's like our big buddy in the sky, and it makes it hard to understand grace. It really does. But, but that's what it's talking about here. We actually now can have confidence to be in a relationship with God because a new and living way has been opened to us through the curtain, that is the Holy of Holies, where no one was ever allowed to go. So let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, right? We have confidence, so we need to draw near, we need to hold on to our hope, and we need to keep meeting together. And that's what I wanna talk about the, the rest of tonight, because that's what church is all about. That's what church is all about. Don't lose sight of what you've been given and who it is that's given it to you, right? He wants us to be a people who regularly gather to have our hearts cleansed, our consciences cleansed as we hear the gospel preached, as we celebrate the sacraments. You know what the Lord's Supper is? It's the gospel preached in a picture. This is why whenever uh, you know, I serve communion at a, at a church, which I do from time to time, we always say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed to make you clean. It's the gospel preached in a picture because God knows that we're people with weak faith and we quickly forget who he is and what he's done. And so he doesn't just give us his word, he gives us the gospel preached in a picture, right? This is what we have been given this body. And so look at what it says here, right after that. He says, let us hold unswervingly, verse 23, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and you don't have to do this on your own. Uh, I was reading a quote by this great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he said, you know, um, God never speaks about his people as like uh, tigers or bears, but always as sheep because sheep are always together, right? There are no Lone Ranger Christians, at least not healthy ones. He says, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we, for, we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So there's a little hint there that things are actually not great. But what's, now skip the warning passage. Don't worry, I'm gonna say something about that. But skip down to verse 32. And this is fascinating because it's like, he's saying, don't give up on the hope. And then he's like, remember the good old days. <laughs> but what are the good old days? Look at this. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Isn't that interesting? A picture of the good old days of their church, the good old days when they needed one another and they loved one another and they hadn't been deceived into thinking that the point of following Jesus was an easy, comfortable life. And you need to remember those days because the gospel was powerful in those days. You know, um, 
it, it's, uh, well, no, I'm, I'm, I was going to bring up another Old Testament story, but I don't have time. Um, the, the church is to be the place where we draw near to God in full assurance as the gospel is preached in word and sacrament, and we remember what we've experienced. But this is, a, this is a great thought. My friend Chad Scruggs, who's the pastor at Covenant Press here, made this point recently, and I thought this was so good. We don't just have our own individual memory to rely on, but we have the corporate memory of the church. And the church is bigger than just even the people that are in this room, of course, but even the people who are alive right now. The church is the church of the living. It's the church of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus made this very point. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Right? The church is more than just even the people that you see around you. And you actually, it takes, here's the way I think I would say it. It takes a whole church, a whole church, every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, every generation to remember how good and faithful God is. How good and faithful God is. You know, um, next to the Bible, do you know the second most popular book at the time of the English Reformation? Anybody know? It wasn't Pilgrim's Progress, that was probably third. It was this little book. Fox's Book of Martyrs. You ever read this? So this is the version you can buy now, okay? This is volume one of eight volumes. The actual, this is a very abridged copy. The actual book is eight thick volumes like this. Just stories of martyrs and what they endured. And you know what? You may not have endured much persecution, but you're part of a community that has. And you need to remember the stories of your community, of your people. Because this is who we are. Those are the good old days of the church, he says. And because of that, he can then bring this warning. Now, I've already talked about a warning passage last week, so I won't go into great deal. The point is, this stuff is serious. If Jesus lived and died... If Jesus died because it was the only way for us to be reconciled to God, then what do you think happens if you spit in his face and reject that? Particularly if you know better. This is not talking about somebody who had kind of a crazy Friday night and did something they never thought they would ever do. And now they're like steeped in guilt. That, that, that happens all the time, and we should talk about that. I don't want you just living in that. But he's talking here about people who have deliberately rejected Christ in a continual way. Trampling on the blood of Christ is not just screwing up and falling into sin, it's, but it's a serious thing. And here's the thing, generally that happens bit by bit. And that's why he says, don't give up meeting together. Don't fail to spur one another on. Agitate one another, actually, is more the sense of the, of the language here. Agitate one another. Don't let people just kind of drift away without saying something. Oh, they may say, no, I'm not really interested in that anymore. And then you pray for them. You don't keep, you know, driving them crazy. But the body of Christ should care about one another, should agitate one another, should spur one another on to good deeds. 
And he has given us the body of Christ for good reason. So that we can corporately remember. Listen, I put it this way. Your stories are to be a gospel resource, a kingdom resource. Share them with one another. Share about the faithfulness of God. Or share about how I'm, I'm, still, I'm, I'm struggling to know who God is. And yet, as I'm struggling to uh, make sense of this part of my story, uh, I, I have people that can come around me and say, yes, I've been there. I can, I, I can pray for you. I can encourage you. Right? That's what the body of Christ is to be about. Don't give up meeting. Don't give up encouraging one another. Don't give up studying the scripture because you might have missed something important like Melchizedek. And don't neglect church. You need the sacraments. Don't let RUF be church for you. It's not. We're an arm of the church, right? But you need the sacraments. You need to be interacting with people who are of various different ages, who've had various different life experiences, right? Because you're going to taste little bits of the faithfulness of God through different stories of the different people that you're in relationship with. And we need them all. We need them all. Let's pray together.